As many of you know, I'm a licensed architect, so I really gravitate towards the architectural metaphors that have to do with the building, the building of the Church of God. And I've, I've talked before about St. Paul's Cathedral in London. Anybody been there? Elizabeth had the privilege, yeah, we have a few hands going up. Elizabeth had the privilege of, of visiting Europe a couple of years ago. And so now when we're watching PBS and Rick Steves Europe and all those kind of things, you know, she goes, I've been there, I've been there, I've been to that one, I've been to that one. So then when we're watching things about Israel, I can go, I've been there, <laughs> I've been there. So we have this thing going on. But St. Paul's Cathedral in London is one of the great buildings in the world. It took a year or 10 years to design and nearly 40 years to build. And the architect was Sir Christopher Wren, who lived to see the 50-year project completed in his own lifetime. In the early 1660s, almost all of London burned. And uh, it was called the Great Fire of London. And of course, St. Paul's burned as well. And Sir Christopher Wren, he was still in his 30s. He had designed a few buildings in Oxford and Cambridge, but he was entrusted with this incredible task of rebuilding St. Paul's Cathedral, the greatest building of the age and one of the greatest architectural feats of all time. And after 50 years of design and labor, there's a masterpiece of neoclassical architecture. It has a triple-layered dome. That means there's three layers of dome. And it's the second largest dome in the world, even to this day. And until 1967, St. Paul's was still the tallest building in all of London. And partway up the dome, they have what's called the Whispering Gallery. And they call it the Whispering Gallery because if you whisper something against one wall, you can hear it 112 feet away on the other wall. And during the construction of this great cathedral, workers were asked by a journalist, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And the first worker said, I'm cutting stone for three shillings a day. And the second worker said, I'm putting in 10 hours a day on this job. And a third worker was chiseling away on a piece of stone. And when asked what he was doing, he stopped and he looked up and said, I'm helping Sir Christopher Wren build the greatest cathedral in Great Britain for the glory of God. All three workers were doing the same job, but only a third man had the proper vision to make his job meaningful and to put his heart into it. And that's because he was the only man who truly understood what was going on. What are we doing here today? If somebody were to ask you, how do you serve the Lord? Some might say, well, I lead a Bible study, or I serve in leading worship and, and music, or I help clean up the church after we have a function at the church. I move chairs, I move tables, whatever we do. I, I serve as a greeter on Sunday mornings. I serve as an usher, or I serve on a committee, or I, I'm a deacon or a deaconess. And all of those are as good as far as they go, but a bigger perspective would be, God has saved me and is using me to help build his church and to be his channel of taking the gospel to all peoples. You see, that was Paul's perspective in, in Romans chapter 1, in verses 5 through 7. God saved Paul from being a persecutor of the church. 
and graciously called him and gifted him to help lay the foundation of the church. The, the ministry of the apostles was foundational. They were the foundation of the church, which Jesus Christ promised he would build. And Jesus said, I will build my church and what? The gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And the way that Jesus built his church is by calling and gifting believers in him to be at work in his church. God called Paul and God gifted Paul to be an apostle. And God gave him a particular spiritual gift or gifts to work in and through him for the church that Jesus builds. And God was using Paul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, the nations, for his name's sake. Now, while none of us are called to be an apostle, but an apostle of Jesus Christ had particular qualifications. You had to be discipled by the Lord Jesus himself. You had to be called by Jesus to be an apostle. And, but God has called each one of us and gifted each one of us, everybody that's a believer in Jesus Christ, in very particular ways, so that each one of us might say, God has saved me. And God is using me to help build his church, to help build Grace Baptist Church, and to be his channel for taking the gospel to everyone and serving for Christ's namesake. You see, God has so much more in mind for each one of us than getting us saved by his grace. By his grace, he has a will, he has a purpose for each one of us in the greatest building project in redemptive history. The building of his church. You see, whatever we do to serve the Lord, we should see it as fitting into that greater purpose of seeing his name glorified in all things that he does and serving in the name of Jesus Christ. One of the cool things is we don't have to be the biggest church in town. We don't have to have the best whatever in town. For every one of us to be effective and gifted workers in the church that Jesus built. It, it doesn't matter what size the local church is. God has a place for each one of us. Each one of us here to which he has called us and which he has gifted us to serve. And I can tell you from experience in pastoring a church of 1,800 people that the larger the church, the less the probability that you're going to be able to find your niche in service. You know, when you have Sunday school classes that are 120 people, <laughs> how many Sunday school teachers do you really need? It can really 120 people be discipled in that particular thing. And, you know, and so the larger the church, the more difficult it is to say, I know what I'm doing and I know where I'm doing it. I know that God saved me and I know how and why God gives me grace to serve him. I know where we need to serve so we can build a Sunday school program. And we could list several things where, wow, God needs me right here in this place. So please turn once again to the first chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 1, verse 5, page 1380. We see in verse 5, to begin with, Romans chapter 1, that God saves us by his grace and gives us gifts to be used in his service. Verse 5. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul says that we have received two things, using kind of an editorial we here. We have received grace 
And secondly, referring to his own spiritual giftedness and calling, he says, we have received apostleship. Paul was gifted for apostleship. So first of all, Paul says, we have received grace. Grace is one of Paul's favorite words. He uses it over a hundred times in his writings. It's used 155 times in the whole New Testament, the word grace. He uses it 24 times in Romans, the most of any book. Paul says, we have received grace, which means, what has he received? He has received God's unearned, unmerited favor. If you deserve it, it's not grace. We are Grace Baptist Church in that God bestows his favor upon us, not because we deserve it, not because we're the best church around, not for any reason other than God does it, undeserved. All you can do with grace is receive it. The Christian life is not a matter of of going out and trying to do enough good deeds, trying to do enough good things. Rather, it's a matter of coming to God as a guilty sinner, deserving of his wrath, and receiving his undeserved favor, his grace through Jesus Christ, who paid the penalty for what you deserve. That's the basis of saving grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that it's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one may boast. Nobody's going to be up in heaven one day saying, look what I did to get here. Doesn't happen that way. But that's only the starting point of grace. The starting point. We need grace for today, don't we? We need grace every day. God doesn't save us by grace and then leave us on our own somehow without his grace to live the Christian life and to serve him somehow without his grace. How does that song go that we will sing as our closing hymn this morning? He giveth more grace when the burden is greater. One of the lines says, his grace has no measure. He giveth and giveth and giveth again. There's not a single moment in our lives Not a single day in our lives that we are not in need of God's grace. Or that we're not fully, completely dependent upon God's grace. And notice in verse 5 that Paul connects grace with his ministry, with his apostleship. Through Christ, Paul says, we have received grace and apostleship. We have received grace. I take this to mean that his calling as an apostle was a gift of grace and that he fulfills his ministry by the power of this grace so that grace is not just God's clemency towards Paul's sin but grace is also the power to enable Paul to fulfill his calling as an apostle. Here's how this works. When God saved you, several things happened to you and in you and about you and all kinds of stuff. You may not even have been aware of most of these things. You probably weren't. You might not have known at the time, but these things happened. For example, in our study of the book of Romans so far, we have seen that the the moment you received Jesus Christ, the moment you trusted in him for the forgiveness of your sins, you no longer belong to you. Remember that? You were bought with a price. You became a bond servant of Jesus Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. On the cross, Jesus paid for your sin debt on the cross with his blood, and now you serve him as your master. 
When you received Christ, you became a bondservant of the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And also, the moment you received Jesus Christ and trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins, the Holy Spirit came to live on the inside of you. Your body became a temple of the living God who lives in you. The Holy Spirit now indwells you, possesses you, fills you with power. And there's many other things we could talk about, but also at the very moment you received Christ, the very moment the Holy Spirit came to live on the inside of you, the Holy Spirit came bearing gifts. He came and brought gifts to you. Now the Bible calls the Holy Spirit the gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts, but also the gift, the Holy Spirit, when he took up residence in you, he came bearing other gifts. These in scripture are called what? Remember the spiritual gifts, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the very moment you were born again and the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you, you were gifted. Every one of us as born again Christians are gifted. We are a gifted people and you can think of what that word gifted means. Uh, we're, we're all gifted. If I was one of those talkback churches, I'd say, turn to your neighbor and say, I am gifted. <laughs> I am gifted because it, it's true. Now, Paul's particular giftedness has to do with his apostleship. He says, through Christ, he received grace and apostleship. I take this to mean that his calling to be an apostle was a gift of grace and that he fulfills that ministry by the power of of God's grace. So once again, grace is not just God's clemency towards Paul's sin, but grace is also the power, the enabling power to do his calling as an apostle. We could turn that around for any one of us. Without grace, without God's continuing undeserved favor, Paul could not fulfill his apostleship and effectively and faithfully serve Christ. Without God's grace, none of us can. We can't even live the Christian life. We can't serve Christ without the grace of God. It's just not humanly possible. And I base this on what Paul says about the relationship between grace and his ministry, his calling. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 15. Well, for the most part, we'll try to stay in Romans today as we talk about these things. For example, turn over to Romans chapter 12. The 12th chapter of Romans. Romans chapter 12 at, at verse 6. The 12th chapter of Romans, the 6th verse. Paul says, since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Since we, since all y'all, you people who have lived in Texas or in the South, you know that all y'all means all of us. Somebody told me in Texas one time, y'all means just you singular. <laughs> I go, y'all? She said, all y'all means all of you together. Since all y'all have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Now, the Greek word get, translated gifts in the plural is charismata. Does that sound familiar? We get the word charismatic from it or, or charisma. The root word of charismata is the Greek word charis, which means grace. Grace. Charismata are gifts of grace. 
We don't earn them. We don't ask Santa Claus for them. We don't deserve them. They are free gifts given by God, given by the Holy Spirit, through which the Holy Spirit can work through us. Charismata are a design enablement freely given to us by the Holy Spirit when he came to live in you so that you will have the ability by his grace to serve Christ, to serve others, and serve his church. In verse 3 of this 12th chapter, Romans chapter 12, the third verse, Paul says, For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, the grace given to Paul gives him the ability to say this. In other words, grace is God's enabling power for various ministries through the gifts that he gives. Paul's gift includes speaking as an apostle. I say this through the grace given to me. Then turn over to the 15th chapter of Romans, verse 15. Chapter 15, verse 15. Because here, again, Paul connects grace with the ministry his ministry is an apostle. Verse 15. He says, But I have written very boldly to you on some point, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given to me from God. Stop there just for a moment. What was the grace given to him from God? What was it? We see it in verse 16. This was the grace. The grace to be a minister of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest, the gospel of John. So when Paul said, as we saw back in chapter 1, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship, he means that God not only saved him from his sin, but he also gave him grace to be an authoritative spokesman, an apostle for the risen Son of God in power. Now, how does this apply to each one of us as we participate in the church that our Lord Jesus Christ builds? Go back to Romans chapter 12 again, the 12th chapter, this time at verse 4. The fourth verse of Romans chapter 12. In the 12th chapter of Romans, Paul begins to apply everything that he has taught in, verses, or in chapters 1 through 11. It's truth after truth after truth in the first 11 chapters. And then in chapter 12, he immediately, at this point, begins to apply it to our lives. He talks about how we are to live and serve as Christians, and he immediately speaks of how each one of us are gifted by the Holy Spirit. Verse 4 of, of Romans chapter 12 says, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, since we all y'all have gifts, since we have gifts, each one of us is to exercise them accordingly if prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with, with cheerfulness. Since we have charismata, we have gifts according to the charis given to us. We'll have a lot more to say about the importance of spiritual gifts when we get to chapter 12, maybe in the next millennium or so. <laughs> but it's important to note at this point that if you don't know how God has graced you to serve him and his church, how God has called you and empowered you by his grace with your own particular spiritual giftedness, 
you'll have a difficult time saying with conviction and faith, I'm helping the Lord Jesus Christ build his church to the glory of God. God saves us by his grace and he gives us grace gifts to be used in his service. Secondly, back to Romans chapter 1 verse 5. God saves us and gives us gifts. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith in others. Romans chapter 1 verse 5 again. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Why? To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sakes. Now who are the Gentiles? The Gentiles at that time were everybody who was not Jewish. They either called them Greeks, they called them Gentiles. You are the Jewish or something else. And that something else was Gentile. And it says literally to bring about faith among all the peoples. The, the Greek word is ethnos. We get the word ethnic from it. You ever heard of ethnic groups? That's probably a better translation for our day. To bring about the obedience of faith among all the differing groups of people. The ethnic groups. You know as believers we're commanded by the Lord Jesus Christ to go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. There's the same word, ethnos. Make disciples of all the ethnos, all the peoples, all the peoples of the world. The Lord Jesus Christ commanded, go, there and make, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I always thought that would be a, a great motto for a church. Grace Baptist Church, where we teach you to obey everything that Jesus commanded. Wouldn't that be great? This is putting first things first. This is our primary purpose. This is our function as Grace Baptist Church, as part of Christ's church. As Paul put it, to bring about the obedience of faith, he called it, among all the nations, all the ethnos, for his name's sake, all the peoples. Now there's some debate about how to interpret that phrase, obedience of faith. What is obedience of faith? Some say that it refers to the obedience that springs from faith in Jesus Christ. That we have faith in God, we have faith in Jesus Christ, and out of that there is a springing of obedience. Since we have faith in Christ, what? We obey him. And this is true. If you believe that Jesus will not let you fall, and he says, go, you will go. And you will trust in him to hold you up. You will obey him and step out. That's what Abraham did. We talked about Abraham in Sunday school class this morning. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place where he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Does that mean he lacked faith? No, he went out not knowing where he's going because he had faith. And so his obedience, when God called Abraham, he says, I'm going just because I believe. And so the obedience sprung out of faith. This is true of all believers. But it'd be kind of a strange thing to to ask that of the ethnos at this point who do not believe. So others say that obedience of faith means that obedience consists in faith. In other words, it's, it's part of faith. That lack of faith itself results in disobedience and faith results in, in obedience. 
That is, God commands everybody to what? Believe the gospel. That's a command of God. But not to believe the gospel is disobedience. And that is true. The Bible calls them the sons of disobedience. They don't believe. Non-believers who do not believe live in disobedience to God. That's, that's a truism. And that we are called of God to help to bring them to obedience of faith. And, and that is true with, as well. So everything I've said so far is, is true. And that's good. It seems to me that Douglas Moo is correct when he says that the two words, obedience and faith, are mutually in, interpreting. In other words, they, they go hand in hand. What does he mean by that? I'm, I'm glad you asked. I can see the question marks going up on your, your heads right now. <laughs> As you study Paul's letter to the Romans, you find that obedience always involves faith. People who have faith always obey. And faith always involves obedience. They go hand in hand. You can't separate the two. Those who obey Christ obey him because they trust him. Those who have faith in Christ obey him. And this is very important for us to know because it's part and parcel of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that gospel that we are called to proclaim. And if we get this wrong, we get the gospel wrong and we give a confusing message. Maybe I have already. You see, men call God, excuse me, God, start out, Paul as an apostle called men and women to faith that is always inseparable from obedience. For the Savior in whom we believe is nothing less than our Lord who is to be obeyed. You can't parcel out Jesus, in other words, when you start telling people about him. Jesus is what? He is Savior and Lord. He is to be believed. He is to be obeyed. It's not one or the other. You can't parcel it out. Where somebody can accept Jesus as Savior and, and say, well, you know, sometime maybe you'll make him the Lord of your life and, and go on like that. No, Jesus is Lord. How did Paul say that a person is saved? And staying in the book of Romans, we go to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Romans 10, 9 and 10. Here is the obedience of faith. This is a good description of what the obedience of faith is. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. That if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. Confess what? With your mouth, Jesus as Lord. The word translated confess in the New Testament means to say the same thing. Homo legeo. Speak the same word, literally. In other words, in confession, we say the same thing that God says about a matter. In other words, we agree with God. We confess, we say with God, we agree with God that Jesus is Lord. In other words, we vocally agree with God who Jesus is. He is Lord. So there we have obedience implied. Then there is faith, middle of verse 9. And believe in your heart that Jesus raised him from the dead, you will what? 
be saved. Confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Verse 10 goes on. For with the heart a person believes, there's faith, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, we will, will be saved. We are to call people to an obedience that cannot be divorced from faith. Now, how did I say the only way we can obey is how? Grace. We obey the same way that we got saved, through God's grace. For we can obey Jesus as Lord only when we give ourselves to him in faith. In other words, to put this all together, now I'm going to uncompl uh, uncomplicate it. Genuine faith is obedient faith. Genuine faith, a person really believes they have, it's an obedient faith. And genuine obedience always stems from faith. So if you're writing that down, genuine faith is obedient faith. And genuine obedience stems from faith. I was listening to a sermon by Stephen Cole this last week, and he said something that really struck me. And he really made it practical pertaining to the way that we present the gospel and, and call people to obedience of faith and tell others about Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And he said, to be part of calling others to the obedience of faith requires that we live in obedience to Christ. We must practice what we preach. If you are not living in obedience to Christ, please don't share the gospel with others. Your life will send a confusing message to them. We are called by the Lord Jesus Christ to bring about the obedience of faith among the people, among the ethnos, around, ethnos, around those who, who do not know Jesus Christ. So where does the ability, the power come from? Every time I, I use that, where does the power come from? I think of that great scene in Chariots of Fire. Remember Eric Little who refused to run on Sunday because that's the day of the Lord. And so he was uh, preaching on Sunday and he, he did that wonderful thing where he read from Isaiah like wings of eagles and those kind of things. And then after one of the, the races, it shows him standing out with an umbrella over his head because it's pouring down rain and he's preaching to the people who came to the, the, the track meet and he says, where does the power come from? And so I always say, think of that, you know. Where does the power come from to tell somebody about Jesus, to stand out in the rain, to tell them about Jesus, to refuse to disobey God so you could tell somebody about Jesus? And if you're like me, there's always a nervousness Sometimes an anxiousness, a certain anxiousness about sharing your faith with others, right? Am I, am I the only one who, who gets sweaty palms and, <laughs> and forehead when we, when we think about that, about opening God's word and, and leading a person to Jesus Christ? I've sat down with a lot of people over the years, a lot of whom have been caught up in false religious systems and, and just the gravity of the thing can make you feel uncertain and, and nervous. We're talking about the condition of a person's soul. We're talking about their right standing before God. 
We're talking about whether they will spend eternity in the presence of the living God or they will spend eternity in utter darkness, sheer aloneness, isolation without God, and isolation from all that God has created, nothing of God where the fire never dies and they live in torment forever. That ought to make us nervous. So where does the ability, where does the power come from to tell somebody about Jesus Christ? Where did Paul say it came from? Why did Paul do what he could do? And he says, from grace. We have received grace. Like everything else in the Christian life, it's all of Jesus and none of me. And we can depend upon his grace. And we can depend upon his grace and the obedience of faith where when we live by faith, our obedience to Christ is going to back up our message. By God's grace, we will live lives that are testimony of his transformational grace. And that brings us to the last point of verse 5 of Romans chapter 1. God saves us and gives us gifts to bring glory to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at the end of verse 5 of, of the first chapter of Romans again. How many times have we read this this morning? We should have it memorized by now. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Paul's aim in bringing about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles was for the name's sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Name stands for the person and all of his attributes. It's because of who Jesus is. He's the eternal son of God who took on human flesh as a descendant of David according to the promises of the Old Testament who offered himself on the cross as our substitute who was raised from the dead and now is exalted on high to the right hand of God where Paul will say he makes intercession for us. It's because who's Jesus, who Jesus is, his name's sake. It was because of this that Paul endured beatings. He endured plots against his life and, and dozens and multitude of hardships to take the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul's ultimate goal was to glorify the name of the Savior who gave himself to redeem rebellious sinners. We could look much more at what it means to glorify God at this point, glorify the name of Christ, and we'll have much more of that to see as we get into Romans but I want to close with this as we give more thought to be able to say with faith and obedience, I know that God saved me and I know how and why God gives me grace to serve him. I started with an architectural metaphor and story. I'm going to end with one. Several centuries ago in a mountain village in Europe, a nobleman wondered what legacy he should leave to his townspeople. And so he finally decided to build them a church. And no one saw the complete plans or know what it looked like, especially on the inside, until the church was completely finished. And when they gathered inside, they marveled at the beauty and the wonder and the craftsmanship of, uh, of this architecture of this building. And then somebody asked, because it was kind of dark in there, they didn't have lots of big windows at that time, and what windows they had were stained glass, so it was, it was dark inside even in the daytime. And they said, where are the lamps? 
how is it to be lighted? And, and the nobleman pointed to some brackets on, on the walls. And then he gave each family a lamp, handed them a lamp, which they were to bring with them when they came to worship. They were to bring the lamp. And he explained, each time you are here and you hang your lamp in the area where you are seated, that area is going to be lit. This is to remind you that when you fail to come to church, some part of God's house is going to be dark. Right? Then God also wants us to carry the light of the gospel out of the church from the dark world around us. That's why they were to bring their light with them because then they would have their light when they're outside the walls of the church. He saved us and has given us spiritual gifts that will be part of the great building project his great cathedral, his church, among every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. So whatever we do to serve Christ, whatever you do, do it in that way for serving that greater purpose for his namesake. Shall we pray? God, it is often awe-inspiring and it is also kind of humbling to to recognize and know and understand that you had no other plan. You entrusted the gospel, the plan for the ages, the plan for all eternity in saving men and women and boys and girls. You entrusted it, first of all, to 12 who taught others, to the 120 who were gathered at Pentecost. Father, and then to people like Paul who took it to the Gentiles, Almost all of us here are Gentiles. Some of us have some Jewish heritage. And Father, who took it to others and took it to others until it came to us at Grace Baptist Church. The plan of the ages to build your church, to bring men and women and, and all the ethnos, all the people to the obedience of faith that we might know all that it is to be part of building your church. And as we sang this morning, when the church, when you come for your church as the bride of Christ, Lord, it's going to be glorious. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.